CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London, now on the 25th and 26th of September this year. It's such exciting news, and I am looking forward to seeing all of you guys on Podcast Row and checking out all of the exhibitors. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by crime and investigation. And I will be there all weekend with bells on and a GNT in hand. So come and join us. And remember to quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. You can pay in installments, and tickets are, of course, COVID-proof. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all in September. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast. And this is the story of Jennifer Guinness. The north side of Dublin Bay, a large hill on a peninsula juts out into the sea, known as Hoth Hill. A fishing village grew up on its north shore, from its harbour up the steep rise. The first castle was built on Hoth Head in 1180, and most of the land on the hill is still part of the adjoining estate, which is these days run by Fingal County Council. With a clear view across the Irish Sea and Dublin Bay, the winding roads along the top of the hill became prime real estate for secluded luxury homes. Canker House was one of these. It's located at the end of a cul-de-sac on the southern side of Hoth Head, in a secluded spot looking directly out across Dublin Bay with nothing to obstruct views and set well back from the road. The pink Regency Villa was built in the 1830s and sat on six acres of land. In 1914, it was bought by a member of the Guinness family. At around half past four on Tuesday, the 8th of April, 1986, three armed and masked men forced themselves into Kanker House. They had driven directly into the courtyard of the house in their badly rusted beige Toyota. The car also had a red number plate with black lettering. They wore balaclavas and had a pistol, an automatic rifle and a service-type revolver. They rang the doorbell, which was answered by Mrs Jennifer Guinness, and the men promptly pulled their weapons, forcing their way into the large home and corralling those inside into the television room. In the home was Jennifer Guinness, her daughter Gillian, the housekeeper and a visiting businessman, Mr Simon Nelson. He was reported as being a trader in rare books and had only been in the house for a few minutes. Then the men searched a number of rooms. They took some jewellery and an unspecified amount of money. 
At 20 past five, Mr John Guinness, the chairman of the Guinness Mahan Merchant Bank, arrived back to the house and found the members of his family tied up. He struggled with one of the armed men and was struck in the face with a gun, which resulted in a bad gash. The intruders said that they were there to take Jennifer and Gillian, but Jennifer begged them and asked them to leave her 23-year-old daughter out of it. The masked men left the house with Jennifer. They said there would be a week to pay a ransom, thought to be a seven-figure sum. The family were told not to contact the guardie, but were not given any details of when contact would be made or any specific warning of what would happen should the ransom not be paid. Those left inside Kanker House could hear the raiders leave, but they weren't able to determine what direction the men had gone in. The gang fled sometime after 7pm, and after a period of struggle, John Guinness managed to free himself and raise the alarm. Gardie were notified sometime between a quarter past eight and nine p.m. that evening. They swung into action and within 30 minutes roadblocks began springing up across Dublin. Speaking to the media later, Gardie were clear to stress the fact that John Guinness had not actually contacted them and they would not say how it was that they had become involved. A message was got to the Garda Commissioner, who was, at that time, preparing to address the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors at a conference in Limerick, and an investigating team with leadership from senior officers was put in place. A Deputy Garda Commissioner, Eamon Doherty, was tasked with handling the matter at that time. Five senior officers and 40 experienced detectives joined local Garda in the operation. The Guinnesses were certainly wealthy, but not super rich, as might be expected given their last name. John Guinness was from a different branch of the family. They did not have immediate access to the two million in cash that had been purportedly demanded by the kidnappers. Jennifer and John had married in April of 1959. The day after the abduction was the couple's wedding anniversary. They'd moved into Canker House after the marriage and had three children, Ian, who in 1986 was 25 and an engineer, Gillian, who was 23, and Tanya, the youngest, who was 20. A media blackout was requested by the Gardaí in both Ireland and the UK while they awaited contact from the abductors to look for the ransom and while police attempted to trace the gang's movements to determine the whereabouts of Jennifer Guinness. The movements of prominent Dublin criminals began being made note of, and it was thought that phone taps were to be established on the Guinness family and what were described by the Irish Times as quote-unquote other likely intermediaries. A description of the three men involved was issued by Gardaí on the 10th of April. The man thought to be the leader of the gang was aged somewhere in his early 30s. The other men had referred to him as Colonel, and he had a well-educated Dublin accent. He was wearing a dark blue balaclava, black shoes, and a dark jacket with grey gloves. He was of medium build, with what Gardy called a beer belly, and he had a dark complexion, with dark eyes. The second man was around six foot in height, well-built with shoulder-length grey hair. He sounded like he was from somewhere in Leinster, 
and was wearing white runners, dark jeans and a green bomber jacket. The last man was also wearing a dark jacket, this time with a white trim and jeans with white runners. He was of slim build with narrow shoulders and had dark blue eyes. Gurdy also told the public that when she was taken from the house, Mrs Guinness was wearing cream trousers and a light blue sweatshirt. She was described as five foot two with shoulder-length grey hair and a tanned complexion. It was noted that she was strong. She was heavily involved in the local sailing club in Hoth and was a particularly active and fit woman for her age. That day, the Deputy Garda Commissioner Eamon Doherty agreed to the lifting of the media blackout. It was becoming unworkable in practice, as whispers of a high-profile kidnapping with a famous last name made their way around journalistic circles. By Friday, no contact had been made, and, worryingly, paramilitary groups had not denied the attack. Gardy were therefore still unsure as to whether they should be looking for a criminal gang or a paramilitary-type group in relation to Jennifer's kidnap. By Saturday the 11th of April, the London-based security company Control Risks had been engaged by the Guinness family. Control Risk specialised in personal security and negotiations with kidnappers. Representatives of the company visited the Guinnesses' home that day and met with John for at least two hours, discussing what the next steps to take might be if and when contact was made by the abductors. There were murmurs in the press that this arrival might have caused some tension with the Gardaí, with the Irish Times noting that control risks generally refuse to comment on the activities of its clients once they have delivered advice. Gardaí officially denied any such tension existed, but a well-placed Garda source told the Irish Times otherwise. By this stage, the search for Mrs Guinness had been extended nationwide, and Gardaí were beginning to focus on the presumption that a criminal gang had been responsible. On Friday, Gardaí carried out house-to-house inquiries. They dismissed speculation by the press that a member of a known Dublin criminal gang had been involved in the raid due to the similarity of his description to that issued of the supposed leader of the armed men, referred to as the colonel. No arrests had yet been made and there was no evidence to even link the abduction to any of the known gangs operating. The investigation was, however, looking into the whereabouts of a known criminal figure from the Santry area and Garda inquiries were being carried out in Crumlin, Dolphins Barn, Santry, Ballyfermot and the Talla areas of Dublin. Police also played down the rumours that there had been a three-day deadline given for the payment of a ransom, which had by that stage passed, saying that the deadline given by the men had in fact been extremely vague. The Irish Times reported on Saturday the 12th of April that Mrs Guinness had been robbed three weeks before her abduction. She had been stopped at a red light in her car on Gardner Street in the city centre when the door was opened and her handbag was snatched. Gardy were at that stage unsure if the two incidents were related in any way. Mr Guinness gave a prepared statement through the Garda press office that afternoon. It said, quote, I wish to thank you, the media, for the responsible way you have handled the reporting of this distressing event. I also want to thank you for your forbearance in the initial stages. 
I want to underline that there is not, nor has there been, any rift or misunderstanding with the Gardi, in whom we, the Guinness family, have the greatest confidence and to whom we are deeply indebted. Our common objective is the safe return of Jennifer, my wife, to our family. We are working towards this and we are relying on your continuing help and support. End quote. The superintendent who gave the press conference said he had no knowledge of attempts being made to pay two million in ransom, nor did he know if control risks, the company brought in by the Guinnesses, were attempting to negotiate a release with the kidnappers. He pointedly told the media that they should perhaps direct that question to control risks. On Sunday morning, Jennifer's daughters, Tanya and Gillian, attended their local church where the congregation prayed for the safe return of their mother. Churches across Dublin, both Catholic and Anglican, followed suit, and their local rector said that daily prayers would be offered in their church until Jennifer was safely home. Later that day, a man was detained in Crumlin Garda Station for questioning as part of the investigation. He was from Santry, and it was expected that he would face charges in connection to other crimes in the coming months. The man was held under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act, on suspicion of possessing a firearm on the day of the abduction. But Garda sources said they were doubtful that the arrest would lead to anything significant. That weekend, over 30 houses were raided and searched in the inner city and Ballymun. However, this did not turn up anything useful in relation to the case. The serious crime squad got involved in the abduction investigation that weekend too. They had been doing detailed work on Dublin gangs. The team working on the Guinness case had begun to focus on two separate groups in Dublin. Soon, this interest was narrowed down to a Tala-based gang, where two men were also being sought by police in Yorkshire in the UK. Surveillance was then mounted on associates of the gang members by members of the Serious Crime Squad. One of the members of this group had rented a beige opal cadet, and the girlfriend of another was reported as having rented a flat at 61 Waterloo Road in Balls Bridge. The beige rental car was seen being driven by two brothers in the city centre the weekend of the 12th and 13th of April. Agarda had noticed the car and had noted that the passenger was a person of interest, an associate of the group that the Gardee had begun to focus on. This sighting was the first time this man had been seen in a week. The Garda had noted the registration, which led to the car hire company and a record of the man who had leased the car and had failed to return it on time. On Monday the 14th of April, the Guinness family informed Gardi that they were considering offering a substantial reward for information leading to the return of Jennifer, if no significant break in the investigation seemed imminent. Police had received over 500 separate calls from the public in relation to the case, and Gardi said that they were thankful for the public assistance. They were keeping an open mind regarding who was responsible. That day, 30 trawlers in Hoth Harbour and a number of houses in Hoth were searched. Again, this turned up nothing of value for Gardi investigating Jennifer Guinness's abduction. Garda sources said it was strange that the drug unit had had no intelligence about a kidnap plot. They had good sources in the gangs, 
and had heard nothing about its planning in those circles, if a gang was responsible. Senior sources told the Irish Times that there were very few groupings in Dublin that would have the sophistication to mount such a high-profile operation like this. Papers also reported that day, Monday the 14th, that Control Risk were liaising with a nominated Garda superintendent. A representative from the security firm had flown into Dublin from London and had had a lengthy meeting with the Guinnesses. An employee of Control Risk was stationed at the Guinnesses' home, alongside a member of the Gardee who was posted with them around the clock. Three senior Gardee working the case, two of whom were tasked with being the Guinnesses' family liaisons, held a 90-minute meeting with the Guinnesses that evening too, engaging in what was described as a frank exchange of information with them. Frank Hanlon, from the Garda Press Office, said he wouldn't get into the issue as to whether there had been contact or negotiations through a third party with Jennifer's abductors, saying only that the Gardaí were satisfied at that point that their inquiry was not being hindered in any way. They had had no discussions whatsoever with these third parties and were clear on making that fact known. They renewed their appeal to the public for information, once again issuing a description of the beige-coloured car seen at the Guinness House. It was thought that evening that, as a result of the discussions had throughout the day, that the Guinness family would be offering a substantial reward. On Tuesday the 15th, late in the evening, Gardaí raided a home in Rathfarnham, believing that Jennifer Guinness was possibly being held there. The house was off Willow Bank Drive, at the end of a quiet, well-heeled cul-de-sac, not far from the foothills of the Dublin Mountains. A young woman had called to the home in Rathfarnham, which was owned by her parents. Papers reported that the house was to be empty, but instead she found that it was occupied by four armed men. Terrified, she fled the area and alerted Gardee. Some of the items that had been taken from Kyankor House were found in this home in Rathvarnum. Specifically, some jewellery was found that matched the description of pieces stolen from the Hoth home the week before. Gardee believed Mrs Guinness had been held in the house until the previous weekend, and the gang had only moved the woman a short time before the house was raided by Gardee. The house was then examined by forensic experts and a small cohort of Gardee kept watch at the luxury home. The investigating team only stayed in the house for about an hour before moving on. Gardee would make no comment beyond the fact that they were carrying out a detailed examination and they expected that this would last well into the morning. It was reported that there was no one at the house when they arrived, but neighbours told journalists that though the house had been empty for several months, there had been a number of people in and out in the last week. On Tuesday the 15th of April, Gardee seemed to be urging the Guinness family to make a public appeal for information on the case. However, the family were resistant to the idea and chose instead to keep a low profile on the matter. The reward was still anticipated, with a lot of talk about how there had been a seven-day deadline set by the kidnappers, but no reward was announced. The Guinnesses' apparent unwillingness to participate in public appeals fueled the rumours that the family were concentrating their efforts on working with control risks to bring Jennifer home. 
the firm was thought to be carrying out secret negotiations with the gang responsible, but Gardy continued to say that no such negotiations were ongoing. Then, early on the morning of Wednesday the 16th of April, Gardy surrounded a house on Waterloo Road, a decidedly posh part of South Dublin City. A Garda negotiator and a doctor were brought to the scene where police believed Mrs Guinness was being held by at least two armed men. News outlets reported that at a quarter to one in the morning, armed detectives surrounded the house in Ballsbridge. As this happened, a man had surrendered. Early reports recounted that a man who was thought to be the leader of the group came out of the house at about ten to one and fired three shots from a handgun. Gardy had returned fire with pistols and Uzi submachine guns. The man had hidden behind a wall and threw his gun away, while yelling, I surrender. He was then taken into custody. No one was injured. The man who surrendered was understood to be wanted by police in West Yorkshire in connection with the murder of a police officer in September of 1984. One of the men who was still inside broke out a window at the top of the house and yelled down to the guardie, quote, We have her here. We'll blow her head off if you don't get offside. End quote. Shortly after, a woman who lived in the house and had nothing to do with the standoff or the kidnapping had appeared near the house and was led to safety by guardie. The guardie had moved back and began negotiations with the kidnappers, abandoning their plans to rush the house through the back door. Over an hour later, at half two, guardie brought in floodlights and barriers. It was believed that the two men who remained inside were brothers, possibly from Talla and Clondalkin, and that they were involved in a criminal gang based out of Ballyfermot. Despite the early standoff and shots fired, Gurdy said they believed the men were willing to, quote, talk things over. The men said they didn't want to surrender until daylight, as they feared ill treatment in Garda custody. They asked for and got a visit from a solicitor and a doctor. The gang members who remained inside the house on Waterloo Road surrendered at 20 past six after garden negotiators were able to convince them of the hopelessness of their situation. Mrs Guinness had also been trying to convince them of this from the inside. When they finally gave up, they said once again that their main concern was that they wouldn't be abused while in custody. Then Mrs Guinness was released and was greeted by her husband and her son, who had been brought from Hoth in anticipation of her freeing. The Irish Times reported that two phone calls were purported to have been made by the kidnappers, one of which was to the Evening Herald newspaper, but Gardie said they were not aware of any bona fide contact from Mrs Guinness's abductors. Gardie also denied reports that someone acting on behalf of Mrs Guinness had successfully made contact with the gang on Monday the 14th. Senior Garda sources told the press that they believed the investigation would focus beyond the kidnap scene. They were also anxious to speak to another man, and indeed Gardy arrested a fourth man later that day. Further individuals who were thought to have facilitated the kidnap were wanted for questioning by Gardy. And so, five and a half hours after the siege began, and nearly eight days since she was forced from her home, Jennifer Guinness was recovered safely. 
delighted to say that this episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. With Best Fiends, the fun never ends. There are literally thousands of levels to play and tons of cute characters to collect. There are always new levels, events and challenges, so this game is fresh every time. It never gets old. So, if you're in the market for a game you won't get bored with, the makers of Best Fiends have created a whole world right on your phone. It's got great music, it's bright and colourful with great graphics, and there's a story all about these cute characters. And Best Fiends keeps your brain busy with its puzzle levels without stressing you out because it's a casual game. It's exactly what I need to unplug from the world around me right now. I love that every time I open the game, there's always something new going on. Right now, I'm hunting Easter eggs to try and catch Egbert, and trying to complete the Cloud Court mission to get Justice Jojo. Who doesn't need a whip-smart judicial butterfly in their life, right? Don't forget that you can add me as a friend on the app by heading to Settings, My Friends, and entering the code 1932267. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on this game, so join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Early on the evening of her release, Jennifer Guinness appeared at a press conference, where more details of what had occurred during the week she was held hostage were revealed. Reporters noted that Mrs. Guinness appeared fresh and relaxed. When she entered the conference room, the journalists present gave her a round of applause. Jennifer Guinness said she was in good humour after her ordeal, despite knowing that her life was in danger most of the time she was being held. She told the press that anger and determination had kept her going. She thought there were at least five people involved in the kidnap and three separate locations had been used. She had been confined to bed by the abductors most of the time. Asked about her feelings towards her captors, Mrs. Guinness said, quote, I feel no hatred for them. I feel very sorry for my family and myself, but I think I feel pity and compassion for them. End quote. Jennifer said she had been able to unsettle the men holding her, by smuggling a tire iron into one of the houses she was detained in. At one point, she also agreed to be more cooperative with them in return for a radio. She had hidden the tire iron in her pocket and kept it under her pillow for two days, but she had been watched too closely to use it. The radio, Jennifer said, gave her hope. She heard that a garden party had been cancelled in Hoth because of her abduction which made her think of her many friends. Jennifer realised she had so many people praying for her. This, she said, gave her hope and buoyed her. During the moves between locations, Jennifer had been bundled into the boot of a car. She had negotiated throughout her ordeal with the men. Before they left the Guinness home, Jennifer had been allowed to bring some clothes with her and she insisted on washing when she needed, no matter where she was being held. Jennifer revealed that she had tried to make sure to talk with the men, in the hopes that they would find it more difficult to shoot her, saying, quote, maybe you don't shoot people you talk to, end quote. She continued, quote, the most dangerous time was when we were moving house. 
there was always the awful thing that someone might stumble accidentally on us. That might have caused a shooting match because they were very heavily armed. End quote. Mrs. Guinness told the press that she had not been blindfolded. Rather, she had been watched closely at all times due to the gang's knowledge that she was sporting and very strong. Another strategy Jennifer employed, because her head was not covered, was that she deliberately tried not to look at the gang's faces in order to increase the chances that they'd let her go. Of her captors, Jennifer said that they had initially been relaxed, given that there was no news about her abduction on the radio or in the papers. But once the media blackout was lifted, they knew that the authorities and the public were on the lookout for them, and the men became jumpy. Mrs. Guinness recalled that the next few days had been unorganised and a bit rough for her. The gang had told her one way or another that she would go free, but while she'd built up a relationship with some of the captors, Jennifer knew that others were afraid she knew too much. Those that she got to know best had become protective of her, and when others would get riled up and curse, these three would step in to calm the situation down. When the shooting started during the standoff with Gardie at Waterloo Road, Jennifer had been taken out of the bed where she'd been kept and sat on a chair in the hall. She told the press conference that she could hear pounding at the door and the breaking of glass. Mrs Guinness had gotten down on the floor as Gardie made their break into the house. Jennifer told the gathered press that she had never been taken to the window and threatened and that no one had ever threatened her. Mr. John Guinness also spoke at the press conference. He praised the Gardie, saying that he always held the force in high regard, but this regard had been strengthened with the events of the previous week. He said that control risks had been brought in purely to advise the family, and that the firm had carried out no negotiations, nor had they paid a ransom. To conclude, John said, quote, This is the moment I've been waiting for since last Tuesday. I was always hopeful and prayed that I could meet you in such happy circumstances. As you can see, Jennifer is back with us and looking remarkably well, despite her experience. End quote. Superintendent Frank Hanlon from the Garda Press Office closed out the briefing and said he was delighted with the results of the investigation and that this result had been due to good police work. He singled out work completed by young detectives who had zeroed in on a lead involving the hire car. This car had been rented by the two main suspects and gave Gardie a decisive break in the investigation. Superintendent Hanlon also noted that this was the first abduction carried out by a gang based in Dublin. On the afternoon of Thursday the 18th of April, three men were remanded in custody at a special sitting of the Dublin District Court. They were 35-year-old John Cunningham of Talla, Michael Cunningham, who was 37 and of no fixed abode, and Anthony Kelly, 43, also from Talla. They were charged with false imprisonment by unlawfully detaining Jennifer Guinness and possession of firearms with intent to endanger life. Their application for bail was refused on Garda evidence that a witness in the case had already been interfered with. The men had nothing to say in response to the charges when they were put to them. The following night, a fourth man was charged in relation to the case. 
Brian McNichol of 61 Waterloo Road faced a charge of falsely imprisoning and unlawfully detaining Jennifer Guinness and unlawfully possessing a firearm at Anne Devlin Avenue in Rathfarnham. Detective Garda Francis Gitlin told the district court that he had answered a phone at an address in Orchardstown Road, Rathfarnham, on the day that Gardy searched the Rathfarnham home, and the caller, a male, had asked for Fergus. Garda Gitlin stayed silent. The caller lowered his voice and said, quote, We're coming to get you. We're coming to get you. You will not know until we're there. End quote. The detective took this as a threat and took it very seriously and said that Fergus, who had been asked for, was a possible witness in the Jennifer Guinness's kidnap. They believed it was Mr. McNichol who had made this call. Further Garda evidence indicated that, if given bail, they didn't believe McNichol would remain in the state to stand trial, given the seriousness of the charge. McNichol was remanded in custody. Meanwhile, Jennifer Guinness seemed to have quickly recovered from her ordeal once Gardy had suspects in custody and legal proceedings had begun against the men. By May 4th, she was back sailing and was endeavouring to break the round Ireland sailing record in a 60-foot racing catamaran. Later that week, on Friday the 9th of May, Brian McNichol appeared before the High Court, appealing for bail. The court heard from a witness, Fergus Kerrigan, who owned the house in Rathfarnham and who told Ms Justice Carroll that he was now in fear for his life. Mr Kerrigan said his fear was such that he now kept implements next to his bed at night. Mr Kerrigan recalled for the High Court that he had been approached in a pub in Rathfarnham by Mr McNichol who said he wanted his house and offered him £10,000. Mr. Kerrigan then alleged that McNichol had said in a threatening manner, take it or else. The witness went on to deny that a gun had been held to his back during this meeting. Mr. Kerrigan admitted having had a lot of drink taken on the 13th of April and having called Mr. McNichol at Waterloo Road from the hotel he was staying at to invite McNichol out for a drink. It was alleged that Kerrigan had been given £100 to take a hotel for the night that Mrs Guinness was moved to his house in Rathfarnham. Mr Kerrigan said that it wasn't unusual for him to meet McNichol socially for a drink or for a coffee. They drank for the day on the 13th and he told McNichol that he wanted to go home, but his house had people in it. Kerrigan said he'd passed out at the flat in Waterloo Road and was put to bed there. The following morning, Mr Kerrigan recounted that someone had told him something had been put in his drink. He hadn't gone to the police because he was very confused about what had happened. Mr Kerrigan had made a full statement sometime after his daughter had contacted Gardee. Then Detective Sergeant Francis Gitlin told the court about the phone call he had taken while in the Orchardstown residence in Rathfarnham. After this, Garda Frank Birmingham gave evidence that he had received confidential information on April 29th about two forged passports that were to be delivered the following week to help McNichol leave the state. On cross-examination, the Garda said he had since met the person who had passed on the information and had said that there were in fact three passports and they'd all since been delivered to a certain other person. 
Superintendent Tom McDermott told the court that he was of the belief that Mr McNichol would abscond if granted bail due to the nature of the charges and the strong evidence against him, which included over 100 statements. The superintendent also outlined that McNichol's wife lived in Rathfarnham and that the applicant had no previous convictions, barring a road traffic offence. He confirmed that McNichol had gone to Donnybrook Garda Station voluntarily before being taken to Whitehall Station for questioning. At the end of the bail hearing, Ms Justice Carroll said that, given the witness Mr Kerrigan's state of intoxication, there had been a threat to him. She also accepted Garda opinion that McNichol might abscond. Bail was refused. On Tuesday the 14th of May, John and Michael Cunningham were also given further remand. While present before the court, counsel for the two men indicated that they would be pleading guilty to the charges of false imprisonment and that they would be waiving preliminary hearings on the other charge. Counsel for the state then said it might be that further charges would be preferred against the men, to which Mr Hanahoe for the two accused said that the state had had plenty of time to lay charges and if there were to be more forthcoming he would expect them that morning. The solicitor for the Director of Public Prosecutions said that a large guard of file was expected and this was the reason he was seeking further remand. This was granted. However, a few days later, the Cunningham brothers were allowed out on bail in order to attend the funeral of their father who had died suddenly. The bail was opposed by Gardie because the risk was still there and Gardie said that they could not provide adequate security. However, an arrangement was made and bail was granted on compassionate grounds. The four men charged in connection with Jennifer's abduction were back before the district court together on the 23rd of May. The Cunningham's solicitor objected to further remand at that time, saying his clients were facing only two charges and wanted to be sent forward for trial as they were anxious to sign their pleas. The other two men, Kelly and McNichol, had no objection to further remand, however. They would all appear again the following week. By the 20th of June, Kelly and McNichol were remanded once more in custody, while the Cunningham brothers were expected to be tried at the Circuit Criminal Court in the following days. So, on Monday the 23rd of June, Michael and John Cunningham appeared before the court and pleaded guilty to falsely imprisoning Jennifer Guinness and unlawfully detaining her at Waterloo Road. The brothers were born in Blessington Street in the city centre, but had moved to Ballyfermish when they were young. They had a respectable background and the wider family was not involved in crime. Their mother had written to Mrs Guinness to apologise for her son's actions. John Cunningham had been sent to Dangan Industrial School at the age of 15 in 1966 after a conviction for robbing houses. It was the first of 27 criminal convictions he would rack up. Michael Cunningham had worked as a plasterer before following his little brother into a life of crime. He was married with two children and had two convictions for receiving stolen goods and malicious damage. The brothers' link to serious crime only dated back five years or so, but they were, at least peripherally, associated with another Ballyfermish native, a criminal known as the General. 
The details of the initial intrusion of the kidnappers was described for the court, that they had entered the Hoth home with a number of firearms, including a machine-gun-type weapon and a grenade, and that John Guinness had been assaulted. It also emerged that a dramatic struggle had occurred over a gun when John Guinness arrived home. He'd been hit with a gun while lying on the ground, and a gun had been pointed at him and the trigger pulled, but no bullet had left the chamber. The men had demanded two million in ransom from the Guinnesses, to be paid in pounds sterling and dollars. Then the events of the 16th of April were described for the court, and further Garda evidence was given of the interviews conducted with the men after their arrests. They were asked how they felt about the kidnap, and John Cunningham had told the detective Garda, quote, it was going to be the big one, but it went wrong, end quote. John Cunningham continued that they thought the family wouldn't call the police, and it could have turned out much worse. Paddy McEntee, acting for the brothers, told the court that they had been approached by a Dublin businessman at a restaurant, who told them that Mrs Guinness was insured against abduction. McEntee said that the Cunninghams hadn't been the ones who came up with the plan. They, he said, were, quote, small-time criminal operators, end quote, though it had been noted that they were highly connected in Dublin's criminal world. They'd expected the money for Mrs Guinness's ransom would come from the insurance plan, not directly from the Guinness family. Mr McEntee said that the Cunninghams had shown humanity during Jennifer's eight-day ordeal. They'd been kind to Mrs Guinness in the circumstances and had given her the radio and something to read. Mr Justice Rowe handed down sentences of 17 years for John Cunningham and 14 years for Michael Cunningham, as he had been less involved than his brother. Charges for possession of a firearm and the theft of 54,000 punts worth of jewellery from the Guinness home were later dropped against the Cunningham brothers in a hearing on the 27th of June. A solicitor appearing on behalf of the defendant, Mr. Kelly, said he needed an adjournment in order to gather extra information not in the book that was served, and a barrister appearing on behalf of Mr. McNichol complained that in their book, 128 witness statements were listed, but this did not include the man that Gardee believed Mr. McNichol would interfere with. On the 18th of August, 1986, Anthony Kelly appeared before the High Court, appealing for bail to be granted. Superintendent Thomas McDermott outlined for the court the charges that Mr Kelly was facing and pointed out that in addition to these serious charges, Mr Kelly had also previously received severe prison sentences and in this case he had been caught red-handed. The superintendent said that there would be evidence that Mr Kelly had been one of the ringleaders of the kidnapping gang and had organised and paid for the renting of two houses used. Mr Kelly had been arrested when he was one of two men who had tried to run from the house in Waterloo Road in the incident where gunshots were exchanged with Gardee. Kelly had six previous convictions in Ireland, seven in England and was wanted on a warrant in England. There was also reliable information that Mr Kelly had been planning to flee to South America, possibly Brazil. On cross-examination, the superintendent confirmed that gunshot residue tests had been carried out on Mr Kelly, 
and though residue was found in his pocket, none was found on his hands. Detective Garda Anthony O'Donnell told the High Court that he had been on duty in a neighbouring garden in Waterloo Road on the 16th of April. After the Gardaí had taken up positions around the house, glass had been broken from one of the back windows and a man came through it. Another man was standing at the window. The first man ran towards the back wall of the garden and Detective Garda O'Donnell had shouted for him to stop. The man turned and fired a shot and O'Donnell returned fire with his Uzi. He later arrested the man who had hidden in a shed in the garden after throwing his gun out the window. Mr Kelly's barrister, Tony Salmon, told the court that his client intended to plead not guilty and was prepared to surrender his passport. Mr Justice Egan said that the evidence of the applicant renting houses involved was going to be difficult to overcome. The application for bail was refused. John Cunningham brought an appeal against the length of his sentence in early November of 1986. Michael Cunningham had initially sought an appeal also, but it was abandoned when the matter came to court. In John's appeal, Paddy McEntee told the Court of Criminal Appeal that before sentencing he had called John Cunningham to the stand to give evidence that he had not been one of the original planners of the kidnap plot, but the judge said that the evidence would make very little difference, and Mr McEntee withdrew his client from the stand on foot of this. The barrister now wanted that evidence heard. But the three-judge court found that the taking of that evidence would not have impacted the trial judge's decision. The appeal was dismissed, and John Cunningham's sentence of 17 years stood. Anthony Kelly appeared in court on the 5th of November, where he pleaded guilty to falsely imprisoning Mrs Guinness. Again, the charges of possession of a firearm with intent to endanger life and the robbery of jewellery were dropped. The court was told that Mr Kelly had rented a bungalow in Drumconrath, County Meath, where Mrs Guinness was held for two days. She was then moved to a bedsit in Arbor Hill near Dublin city centre, which was also rented by Kelly sometime in February or March of 1986. On Saturday, Jennifer was moved to the Kerrigan house in Rathfarnham until the daughter of the owners returned home. The car she had seen parked up outside the house was seen in the early hours of April 16th being backed into the driveway by Mr Kelly at the Waterloo Road house. Mr Kelly was arrested after the shootout in the back garden when he was ordered out of the shed. He had told Gardy that the men left in the house were heavily armed and one of them was potentially dangerous. Kelly had called the Cunninghams from a neighbouring house before they gave themselves up and reminded John in particular that he had a pregnant wife at home and to think of them. Kelly was born in Dublin in 1943 and his family had moved to Leeds shortly after. Kelly began burgling businesses and homes there as an adult. He and his wife moved back to Ireland, but she and the kids had returned to England and they were divorced in 1982. Kelly then married again and was employed as a stall trader, selling mostly jewellery. Kelly's senior counsel referenced the sentences that had been handed down to the Cunninghams, both of whom had a number of serious convictions. Kelly had provided valuable evidence to the Gardaí after his arrest, 
and had been the most humane to Mrs. Guinness during her captivity, he said. Mr. Justice Rowe, President of the High Court, said that Kelly had played a major role in the kidnap plot, whether or not he had been one of the men who had initiated the kidnapping by bursting into the Guinnesses' home. He had, however, spared Mrs. Guinness the ordeal of having to give evidence. In this instance, Kelly was handed down a 14-year sentence. After his sentencing, West Yorkshire police confirmed that they would be seeking Kelly's extradition after he had served his sentence to face charges of murder and attempted murder in connection with the killing and injuring of two police officers in Leeds in 1984 in the course of an armed robbery. The following day, before Judge Dominic Lynch and a jury of eight men and four women in the circuit court, Brian McNichol stood trial for his charges of falsely imprisoning Mrs. Guinness and having a firearm with the intent to endanger life. He pleaded not guilty. Mr. Anthony Kelly, senior counsel for the state, told the court that they would hear from a witness who said that McNichol had organised the kidnapping the day Mrs. Guinness was rescued by Gardee. McNichol had also lived for a time at 61 Waterloo Road, where Jennifer had finally been rescued. The owner of the house, Mrs. Clora Lenehan, said that McNichol had the key and the run of the house. The jury were also told that Mr. McNichol had visited John Clark the Tuesday after Jennifer's abduction and that he had told Mr. Clark that he was going to come into a lot of money. After this, McNichol and Clark had gone to the pub and Clark heard McNichol mention the figures of one and two million pounds. The court heard that McNichol was arrested when he returned to 61 Waterloo Road. Jennifer Guinness then took the stand. It was the first time the public had heard details of her recollections from the day she was forced from her home. She told the court that she had been out to walk the dog that day at about a quarter past four and was returning as she was expecting a man to call by to collect a book. When she got to her gate, she saw a yellow or beige car and assumed that it was Simon Nelson about the books. The man in the car appeared to be on his own, but there was something bulky in the back, covered with sheets. The man had followed her into the house and when she turned to give him the book, Jennifer said she noticed the gun in his hand. Her initial response was to tell the man not to be stupid, but he said that this was no joke. He asked her if there were any panic buttons in the house, but Mrs. Guinness said that they weren't that sort of people. She was scared to call out to her daughter in case this intruder might shoot. Then the other men came in and she noticed that the first man, who she now identified as John Cunningham, was being called Colonel by the others. Jennifer told the men that they had the wrong family, but they said no, that wasn't true. They said they were going to take Gillian, and Jennifer was to put pressure on her husband John Guinness to pay over two million pounds. At one point during the ordeal, a census enumerator had called to the door and one of the men had stood behind Mrs. Guinness, twisting her arm and holding a gun to her back while she dealt with the person. Then at half five, John Guinness arrived home. Jennifer was put in the TV room with Gillian, the housekeeper and the visiting book dealer, and while there, they heard a shot. Then John was ushered into the room. 
His nose was bleeding, but Jennifer was relieved to see him. The gang grabbed Gillian and brought her into the hall where she broke down crying. Then they decided to take Jennifer and Gillian, but the men soon realised they wouldn't be able to control two people, so they had Jennifer go and gather some things, and she was shoved into the back of their car. A pillowcase was placed over her head as a hood, and a rug was put over her. Two of the men sat in the front of the car, while the third sat on Jennifer's legs. After a while, one of the men in the front was let out of the car. Mrs. Guinness said she could tell that they travelled through Sutton, the only way off Hoth Head, and they seemed to head north, towards Swords and away from Dublin City. They drove for about an hour and then stopped to pick up another man. Mrs. Guinness said she was sure they had been on the Ashburn Road, and they stopped along there a few times for one of the men to make phone calls. There was no conversation in the car. It was during this journey that Mrs. Guinness managed to get a tire iron from under the floorboards of the boot and hide it under her coat. They arrived at a house and she was made to lie in a bed while handcuffed to one of the captors. That night, the man she was cuffed to started to snore and Jennifer told the court that she made such a fuss that the man she knew as the sergeant agreed to push another bed over to distance Mrs. Guinness from the noise of her guard. The next day, the men had seemed relaxed and agreed to bring Jennifer the radio and some magazines. A chain and a padlock was got so that Jennifer didn't have to be handcuffed to a guard, though one guard was still with her at all times. But the day after this, Thursday, the news broke about Mrs. Guinness's abduction. She heard it first, on the radio, and the gang found out the blackout was lifted at lunchtime. Jennifer worried what the men would do when they realised, and she had been right to. They became angry and threatened her. They told her to put on all of her clothes and that they were going to take her to the woods and bury her. Jennifer was put back into the boot of the car and was told they were taking her to the north. When the car stopped, she was hidden in a wooded area with one man as a guard. They were there until midnight that night. The men were angry with her at that stage as they had found the tire iron hidden in the bed. After this, they got back into the car with the men again saying they were headed north. But Mrs. Guinness didn't believe this to be the case as she thought the men would be more nervous if they were going to cross the border. After about an hour and a half drive, Jennifer was put into a bedsit, which she described as appalling. It was a single room with no toilet and all four had to stay in it together. Meanwhile, her captors kept up the pretense of being in the north. Jennifer was moved again on Sunday evening to the house in Rathfarnham. There, she heard people with Northern Irish accents for the first time. She said these people were more aggressive than the others. One had suggested locking her in the garage and used foul language all the time. While in the Kerrigan house, the men started to put pressure on her to contact someone to get John to pay over the money for her. Jennifer tried to stall them because, she said, she felt the longer she kept them out of touch with her family, the better the chance the Gardaí would have of finding her. Jennifer was allowed to contact a family friend to pass on a message to John that she was alive. She used the pet name for one of their daughters as proof it was her. 
On Sunday evening, Jennifer was left with one of the Northern Irishmen as a guard, and she said she'd been frightened of him, even though he had been warned by Anthony Kelly not to harm Mrs. Guinness. By Monday morning, Mrs. Guinness could no longer stall the men, and they made contact with her brother in London. That evening, she heard people coming into the house and a girl's voice. This was followed by a number of flurried phone calls in code by her captors. She was then put into a cardboard box in the back of a van and moved to Waterloo Road. There, she was handcuffed and put sitting on the floor for two hours and then changed to the fireplace. On Tuesday evening, she was informed that plans had changed. Her eyes were taped shut and she was given sunglasses to wear. Then she was put sitting on a chair in the hall. She heard banging and gunshots and thought to try and get away, but was afraid that she would get shot. The Cunningham brothers brought her upstairs after that. They were highly emotional and full of adrenaline. All the weapons were in the room she was brought to and the brothers started to make comments about blowing off people's heads. Mrs. Guinness got under the bed to try and protect herself. The men finally calmed down a bit when Anthony Kelly called and spoke to them on the phone. But John Cunningham said he didn't want to go to prison and preferred to go down in a blaze of glory. The men called their families. John Cunningham had a cigarette and then took the bullets from his gun. The men turned to Mrs. Guinness and in a very bizarre moment shook her hand before releasing the woman, eight days after they had taken her from her home. Mrs. Guinness agreed with Rex Mackey defending when he put it to her that she had not been physically harmed or ill-treated in any way at Waterloo Road. Next, John Guinness took to the stand. He told the court that he was a banker and described his interactions with the armed gunmen in his home. One of the men had called him a clever bugger. When he was on the ground, a gun had been put to his ear and he heard the trigger being pulled, but no shot was fired. He was punched in the eye and when he put his hands to his face, he heard the trigger being pulled again. This time, a bullet hit the wall in the house. After this, he was hit a few more times. Before the gang left the house, they told John that they wanted two million in sterling or dollars, or a mixture of both, and if he didn't get the money, there would be dire consequences. They gave him a code word. Jackal. On the second day of the trial, Detective Inspector William Summers took to the stand. He had arrived at Waterloo Road at 23 minutes past one. He and his colleagues could hear a commotion from the back of the house and then there were shots fired. He had a sergeant, Rice, smash a window in the door. Negotiations started then. The men inside said that they weren't going to prison. Anthony Kelly gave them information about what weapons were inside the house and that there were explosives in the house too. Kelly was allowed to speak to the Cunningham brothers from the steps of number 61 and then called them on the phone from a neighbour's. At one point, Jennifer Guinness showed herself in the window and told the guardie that the men were conferring with one another. She indicated to guardie that John Cunningham might be in a volatile state with a hand gesture. At twenty past five, Detective Inspector Summers instructed the men to leave their guns and explosives in a bag in the centre of a room, and then to come out of the house separately. 
In response, two bags of clothing were thrown out of a window. Finally, at 6.24, John Cunningham unlocked the door and allowed the inspector to bring Mrs. Guinness out. The men were then arrested and the house searched. In one room, they found two bags with three small guns, an Uzi-type gun and a grenade. Then Detective Garda Fehli gave evidence of his conversations with Anthony Kelly that night. Kelly had told him that John Cunningham was the boss in the operation and that he had met Cunningham in Shearson's pub earlier in the day where he was told to come to the house. Garda Derek Dillon told the court that he had been preserving the scene at 61 Waterloo Road when he heard people at the front door. Mrs. Clora Lenehan, the owner of the house, had arrived with the defendant Brian McNichol. She spoke to the officers there and was allowed into the kitchen. She said she had no idea about what had happened in her house. Clora Lenehan also gave evidence herself. She explained that she and her estranged husband owned the property, but that she lived on the upper two levels of the home while the self-contained garden flat was let out. There were a number of people who would occasionally stay in the house with her, though she didn't share it with anyone in a formal sense. Ms. Lenehan had known Mr. McNichol for about a year and a half, and he had been staying in the house more frequently in the six months before April 1986. Ms. Lenehan understood that Mr. McNichol was originally from Derry, working in construction, and that he lived somewhere near the Orchard Pub in Rathfarnham. The witness went on to describe the days just before she arrived to find Gardie treating her home as a crime scene. Mr. McNichol had been about and asked her to go to Kennegad with him. Eventually, she agreed and was collected by Mr. McNichol and Mr. Kerrigan, who owned the house out in Rathfarnham. They dropped Kerrigan home and the two continued on to Kinnegad. She'd gone to a dance with a friend of hers, Mrs. Lees, on the 12th of April. Mr. McNichol was supposed to have gone, but in the end he wasn't able. They'd called to a number of pubs and friends over the next two days, and on their way back to Dublin had stopped into a Mr. Clark's house. When they got back to Dublin, they'd gone to the pub. In the course of the weekend, Mrs. Lenehan had also been introduced to John Cunningham. Detective Garda Jim Mitchell then described for the court how, over the weekend of April 12th and 13th, he had spotted an Opal cadet in College Green with John Cunningham in the front passenger seat. However, Garda Mitchell couldn't see any of the other occupants clearly. The detective Garda checked the registration of the car and discovered it had been rented by Anthony Kelly and had missed its return date. It was the same car Anthony Kelly had been seen in at 61 Waterloo Road in the early hours of the 16th of April. Kelly had reversed the car into the drive of the house where, inside, Jennifer Guinness was being held against her will. After a break for the weekend, court resumed on Monday the 10th of November with testimony from Mr. John Clark. He was one of the many people who had socialised with Brian McNichol and Miss Clara Lenehan in the days before Mrs. Guinness's rescue. Mr. Clark said that McNichol and Mrs. Lenehan had called to his home in Westmeath at about half past twelve 
on the afternoon of the 15th of April. Mr. McNichol had signalled to Mr. Clark that he wanted to speak with him privately. Clark said it was at this point that the defendant said he was expecting to come into a large sum of money, three or four hundred thousand pounds, and he wanted investment advice. Clark told McNichol to put the money in the bank, but according to the witness, McNichol had said it wasn't worth his life to do that. That evening, they'd gone to the pub in the car Mr. McNichol was driving, which he said belonged to Fergus Kerrigan. McNichol kept bringing up various sums of money and had at times mentioned sums of one or two million, but Clark had stopped paying any heed to this talk. The next day, Mr. McNichol had turned up at Clark's house again and Mr. Clark said he'd called him aside once more. This time, McNichol had told the witness that he was in terrible trouble. Clark continued, quote, He was extremely agitated and white-faced and was pacing up and down the room. I asked him what was wrong and he replied, I organised the kidnapping of Mrs. Guinness. He did not say how he did it or how it was done, but I took him seriously. I thought he was joking for a second. Then I looked at him and he looked very serious to me, end quote. Clark told McNichol he was an awful fool. McNichol said that he had rung Fergus Kerrigan's house and the phone had been answered by a strange man, which he assumed was a guard. McNichol had said to Clark that Fergus was after going to the cops, saying, quote, Fergus must have shafted me, end quote. Clark asked McNichol what he was going to do, if he was thinking of running, and McNichol had told Clark that he couldn't because Mrs. Lenehan was with him. McNichol admitted to him that Kerrigan was involved and then said he needed to talk to someone. Then McNichol had thanked Clark and left. On the stand, Mr. Clark said that he had been unnerved by this information and thought that he was badly compromised by having been told this, so he decided to go to the guardie. He decided it was best to go straight away to the police dealing directly with the kidnapping and so got on a bus to Dublin to pass on what he knew. On cross-examination the next day, Mr. Clark denied defence counsel Rex Mackey's suggestion that the conversation Mr. Clark had described on the stand was a, quote, tissue of lies, or that he had been expecting McNichol to call to his house. Mr. Clark also said that he had known Fergus Kerrigan for some 20 years. Kerrigan was his fourth cousin, and they were business acquaintances. Mr. Clark said he wasn't sure if he had received any phone calls from Mr. Kerrigan that month. The Garda, who had picked up the phone in Fergus Kerrigan's house on the 16th, also gave evidence and recounted the voice on the other line saying, we're coming to get you and you won't know until we're there. The Garda said there had been six calls to the house that day, most of which were hang-ups. A Mr Francis Mulligan told the court that he had been with McNichol on the 16th of April when the defendant called to his house. Mr. Mulligan said that McNichol had shown him a copy of the Evening Herald newspaper and asked if Mulligan had seen it. The witness then said McNichol had told him that the kidnappers had been apprehended at Clora's house. Then the court also heard from various individuals who had rented out the property used to house Mrs. Guinness over the eight days she was held for a ransom. On the fifth day of the trial, Detective Sergeant Matthias Kinnahan gave evidence of his arrest of Mr. McNichol. This had occurred on the footpath at Donnybrook Road outside the Garda station and McNichol had asked him, shocked, what was all this about? 
McNichol was then brought to Whitehall Garda Station. During cross-examination, Detective Sergeant Kinnahan was asked if he could point to any evidence that placed Mr. McNichol in the Guinness household. Kinnahan responded that he had acted on certain information and it was his belief that McNichol was part of the gang at Hoth. He agreed that there had only been three men present in the house. Detective Garda Thomas Kelly had interviewed Anthony Kelly, who had said that John had organised it and that John was the boss. Then the jury were excused in order for a legal issue to be dealt with and were asked to return the next morning. The following day, the case was adjourned at lunchtime when one of the jurors took ill. Before that, the court had heard from Detective Garda James Bernard Hanley from the Garda Technical Bureau. He had interviewed McNichol at Whitehall Garda Station on the 16th. McNichol had said that all he knew of the Guinness kidnapping was what he had read in the papers and had then asked for his solicitor. He was asked to account for his movements on the 8th of April but told police he could not remember that far back saying only that he'd been down the country with Clora Lenehan for a while. Closing out the evidence in the case, Superintendent Tom McDermott gave details of McNichol's background and personal circumstances. The guard admitted that McNichol's was a bit of a mystery to the guardee. The other men who had been convicted in relation to the kidnap had lengthy criminal histories, but this was not the case for McNichol. McDermott also agreed with defence counsel that McNichol had begun to play an active role in Mrs Guinness's abduction on Friday or Saturday, but added that he thought it was fair to say that once he had, McNichol had become deeply involved. The gang had offered McNichol £100,000 for the use of the house on Waterloo Road. In his closing speech, senior counsel Rex Mackey argued for leniency for his client, saying McNichol had played only a minor role in the abduction, which had occurred at a late stage of the kidnap plot. The court had heard that it was not suggested that he had been involved in transporting Mrs Guinness between locations. After this, the jury deliberated for just over an hour. Brian McNichol was found guilty on both charges. At sentencing the next day, Judge Dominic Lynch took into account Superintendent McDermott's evidence and said it appeared to him that McNichol may have overstated his involvement to Mr. Clark when they spoke. McNichol was sentenced to 12 years. Once the case was over, Jennifer Guinness spoke to the press. She said having to give evidence in the case had been stressful but reiterated earlier statements that she didn't hate the men who had held her captive. Jennifer said she was pleased to hear that John Cunningham had named his baby girl after her, but said that she did not wish to see the child, nor anyone close to those who were responsible for her kidnap, clarifying that although she didn't hate anyone, she didn't particularly like the people who had put her through such an ordeal. She described herself as relieved and tired, and reiterated once again that no money had been handed over, saying it was her belief that if the ransom had been paid, her death would have been more likely. The Guinnesses said they were continuing to focus on getting back to living quietly and gently. In the days following McNichol's conviction, it emerged exactly how close the payment of a ransom had been by the time Mrs Guinness was rescued. 
The day before her recovery, a business executive from London had brought £300,000 into the country. Gardy believed the sum was to be an initial payment to the gang to secure Mrs Guinness's safe release, with a further £900,000 to be paid over after. The man was detained by Gardy as he returned to Dublin Airport on Friday the 21st of April. It was also reported that Mrs Guinness had in fact contacted Control Risk in London on the Monday of her captivity, but that she hadn't said who she was, only that she was calling in relation to the Guinness kidnap. She was told no one could assist her, and it was after this that she rang her brother in London. On Monday the 2nd of March, Jennifer Guinness was one of 22 people presented with an award for bravery by the British newspaper The Daily Star in London. On Saturday the 27th of February 1988, John Guinness died in a climbing accident on Mount Snowdon in Wales while on a hike with his family. He fell 500 feet and was gravely injured. He was 52. In mid-November of the same year, Anthony Kelly began a hunger strike in jail, protesting the fact he was being held in Limerick Prison rather than in Dublin. He ended up being moved to hospital a month into the strike. Michael Cunningham finished his sentence in 1996. Then, on Monday the 16th of September 1996, John Cunningham walked out of his low-security prison, Shelton Abbey, and absconded. Jennifer Guinness only became aware of it when she came across the coverage in the news. By this point, Jennifer Guinness was the chairperson of Victim Support, working on victims' rights within the Irish justice system, and said that victims should have a right to be informed if there was any change in sentencing, early release, release date, or in the case of an escape by the offender. Gurdy carried out searches for Cunningham and circulated his description. Shelton Abbey has very minimal security, and prisoners are free to engage in various activities throughout the day there, before returning to shared rooms or dormitories. Cunningham had served 10 years of a 17-year sentence, and with remission was due to be released the following year. Within days of his escape, reports emerged that John had been seen in the company of a prison officer and his wife at a pub in County Wicklow the Sunday before he escaped. The group was spotted by a senior member of the prison service, and once they'd been noticed, what was described as a 90-minute excursion ended. The prison officer was suspended and an inquiry was ordered. Gurdy kept watch over the wedding of Cunningham's daughter on Saturday the 21st of September. John Cunningham had been granted permission for temporary release to attend the ceremony, but was not going to be allowed to attend the reception. All that had been put into question when he was discovered drinking in the pub. But he didn't turn up. In October 1997, John's brother, Michael Cunningham, was arrested and detained by customs officers in Heathrow Airport. Cunningham was about to board a flight to the Netherlands when he was stopped. He was travelling with John Gilligan, who was carrying £300,000 in cash that he could not explain the origin of. The men could be held by customs officials for up to 36 hours under the drug trafficking legislation cited. 
Gilligan was charged with the concealment of money in order to avoid a drug trafficking charge. Cunningham was charged by British police for outstanding warrants in relation to armed robberies in the Yorkshire area in the early 80s. John Cunningham finally turned up again in March of 2000. On the morning of Friday the 10th of March, he was arrested by Dutch police, who had been working closely with the Garda National Drugs Unit. When he was stopped, Cunningham was carrying a loaded pistol, and a search of his apartment later turned up further weapons and 600 kilos of cannabis. Another apartment nearby, which was rented in Cunningham's name, was also searched, and 50 kilos of speed and €100,000 worth of ecstasy tablets were found along with two additional handguns. The drugs were valued at eight million punts. Cunningham was described as an associate of the gang responsible for the murder of Veronica Guerin. Other Irishmen, suspected to be involved in the operation, fled Amsterdam after Cunningham's arrest. An Irish woman, two British men and a Dutchman were also arrested at the same time. Arrests by the Garda National Drugs Unit and the Criminal Assets Bureau followed on Monday the 13th across Dublin. Gardy said they believed John Cunningham had travelled to Amsterdam shortly after escaping from Shelton Abbey four years before. In October of 2000, Anthony Kelly was jailed for the possession of around 160,000 punts worth of cocaine. He was about to face trial for the possession, along with his wife, but pleaded guilty as the jury was being sworn in and the charges against her were dropped. John Cunningham appeared in a Dutch court in February of 2001 on charges related to the seizure of drugs and weapons the year before. Cunningham and his associates had been under surveillance for five months before the raid, and the three-judge court heard reports from undercover police along with viewing witness statements and covert photography. Cunningham was accused of having collected a backpack with £100,000 from an Irish trucker and returning it filled with the same value of ecstasy pills the next day. Police investigations had turned up no accounting for how Cunningham made a living in the Netherlands, nor did he have any substantial assets in the state. He was sentenced to nine years by the Dutch court, though with time served and remittance for good behaviour, that was expected to be five years in reality. Cunningham was described as, quote, the ringleader who controlled an international drugs and weapons racket, end quote, which was estimated to be worth more than eight million punts. In the end, Cunningham's sentence for these drugs charges was reduced on appeal later that year to seven years. It was expected that Cunningham would be returned to Ireland in less than three years. This return finally occurred on the 2nd of November 2004. Cunningham was to face a charge of absconding from prison. He was released from prison here in February of 2007, and after living in Tala for a time, he relocated to Spain. John was last seen in Ireland in January of 2015 when he attended Michael's funeral in the Church of Our Lady of the Assumption in Ballyfermot. Michael was 65 and had suffered a heart attack in his home. After this, John Cunningham returned to Spain, where it's believed he's now associated with Christy Kinahan. A year later, in January of 2016, 
Jennifer Guinness passed away in her own home, surrounded by her family, after a long battle with cancer. She was 78 years old. Mrs Guinness was remembered for her love of sailing, her charitable work, particularly with victim support. But she was also remembered for the determination, strength and grit she had shown in the wake of her eight-day ordeal and the part she had unwillingly played in one of the most audacious crimes ever committed in Ireland. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Jessamine Summers, Meredith Slaughter, Nikki Kerrigan, James Gannon, Charles Comiskey and Deirdre Madigan. Thank you so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. You guys keep me going and, along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes as well as nifty merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsor for this week, Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, guys. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. And that he had met Cunningham in Shearson in in Shearson Shearson. <laughs> and that he had met Cunningham in Shearson's Shearson. Shearson's, in Shearson's pub, in Shearson's pub, 